Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get into tonight and uh, see what we can do with old Mr. Abraham. We are smack dab in the middle of his life, and uh, we are going to get kind of far here today. Hopefully, we're going to get through two chapters. And everybody say Abraham. Abraham. How many of you guys sang that song about Father Abraham? Have many sons? Yeah. Okay, well, everybody calls Abraham the father, and obviously his name means father of great nations and all that kind of thing, but he is seen to be the father of many, many things, and uh, the father of Islam, the father of Christianity, the father of faith, all sorts of things, and uh, so Abraham is a big dude, right? Really influential. Maybe we could say one of the most influential people in the world, right? And uh, so influential, influential. Now, how, now, Abraham did not just like get born and then was influential. He had quite a journey to walk through. Amen? And so Abraham uh, was born. This is just a quick review. He was born into a very pagan uh, family in a very pagan area where uh, there was not much godliness known. God was not worshipped. He wasn't known. His, his name was not known. And uh, so that's what he was born into. And just like one day, God intersects his life. God saw in Abraham, or Abram at that time, something about him. Something about him. And we're going to see it in this, the chapters that we're going to go through today. We, we kind of grabbed it uh, a couple of weeks ago. God saw that he was going to be, well, first of all, God saw that he was a humble man and uh, that he was obedient, but he also saw that Abram was a man that led his family and would lead his family into the things of God. That was one of the things that God saw in him, and we're going to see that in the scripture here tonight. So that's one of the reasons why he got chosen. So, you know, Abram was going through life, right? And then all of a sudden God intersects him and says, um, excuse me, you're going to be amazing and I'm going to bless the whole world through you and you're going to be blessed and you're going to have tons of kids and you're going to da, da, da. And, you know, he woke up from the dream and went, what? Not a dream, but the vision. And, and so then he did what God said. He, he obeyed. Right? And then a little bit later on, God intersects his life again and says, Abram, look up into the sky and all, or out in, into the night sky. And all the stars you see, those are going to be all you just as an, if you can count them, then you can count your kids. And you're going to be amazing. And you're going to have just this incredible life. And you're going to have blessings. And all this land you're walking on is going to be yours and, and all that. And everywhere you walk, everywhere you tread is going to be your land. And so then God goes up from him and he goes, Okay, so he starts treading out the land. God said, the, the Bible says that Abram obeyed. Then there was another moment in time where God comes down. How many times has God come into your life and messed you up with a big dream? With a big possibility, with a big prophecy? Well, this is Abram's life at this point. And so God comes down and intersects his life again. And he, he says, you know, all sorts of just crazy things. And, and uh, actually, at that point, let's, let's pick it up in the Word because I want you to see it. I want you to see how vastly important is probably one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. Uh, look at uh, Genesis 15, verse 6. Actually, let's start at verse 4. Then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir because he's, he's kind of whining about the fact that he doesn't have a baby yet. He doesn't even have one kid. And God keeps coming to him and saying, you're going to be the father of all these nations. And so this time Abram goes, um, excuse me. I don't even have one yet. 
What are we going to do about this, God? You know, this is, this is kind of what he's saying. So verse 4, uh, the, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but a son is coming from your own body, and he will be your heir, and he will take you outside. And look up to the heavens, and, uh, and he took him outside, and he said, look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here is the pivotal verse of the entire Old Testament. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. For the first time in Abram's life, it says here that he believed. Every other time he obeyed. But there was a shift in Abram in this verse. Where all of a sudden, all these possibilities, all these times that God was coming to him. And, and he was like, okay. He never refuted him. He never said, ah, nah, it'll never happen. But he stepped out in obedience. But it never says he uh, believed. But until this verse, there was a shift. Abram believed. Where do you believe? In your heart. You believe on the inside. Every single one of you came to a point in God where God came to you and said, I will forgive your sins. I love you. I have a great life for you. I want this and this and this for you. And, you know, you can hear that and go, okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll start obeying. I'll start doing what you say. I'll start. But there comes a time where there's a shift in your heart. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. There's a shift that has to happen on the inside. The work of God is on the inside. And when that inside work starts to happen, that's when there's that shift. And the word there in that verse said that it was credited to him as righteousness. So the work of God first starts on the inside. But if we have inside work with no outer showing of it, then that's not good either. The rest of this passage then, after Abram believed, the rest of this this chapter here, it says, and into the next chapter, it says that uh, God asked him for a sign, a token. Okay, if you believe in your heart, now what's your token on the outside? That's for us as Christians. But for Abram, God came to him and he said, okay, listen, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. As for me, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to make sure that you have many descendants. I'm going to make sure that you get this land and I'm going to make sure that you are a blessing. I am going to do as for me. This is what I am going to do for you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch over you. As for me, this is what I'm going to do. Now, as for you. I need you to do something from now on. You and all the males in your household and all the males that you have bought, all the males that have been born, and from this moment on, the token, the outward expression of the inner working of the heart is that I will expect circumcision out of you. And so a little bit later in the passage, they do it. He comes home. He comes home from this, wherever he's at, he comes out. I don't know where he was when he had this, this uh, exchange with God. And he walks out and he says, okay, listen. We're all going to get circumcised. And guess what? They did it. There is no fighting against it. There's no complaining. There's no, I don't know if that's for true. Maybe they just didn't write it down in the Bible. But they did. They did it. 
outer versus inner. Outer versus inner. Before we go into our new chapters, I want you to turn over to James 2, and I want you to see this. Because this is going to be a struggle for the rest of humanity. And I talked about this last week. This is going to be the biggest struggle in humanity. Is it inner or is it outer? The church is going to grow. And there's going to become this thing called the Catholic Church. And and it's going to explode. It's going to become big and huge. And there's going to be all sorts of popes and bishops and and all of that kind of thing. And, And there's going to come a time when there's not so much of the inner going on. It's going to all be on the outer. And it's going to become hypocritical. And there's going to need to be reformation. The Jewish people, they're going to start growing and they're going to start having kids and they're going to become very, very influential and big and strong. And the fight is always going to be, does God hold their heart or are they only on the outside? When Jesus came and walked on this earth, he approached the Jewish people and he said, what? What?" He even called them whitewashed sepulchers. They looked really good on the outside. They had the outside going on, but inside they were filled with dead man's bones. God demands a heart change in every single one of us. He demands the alignment of our heart and he knows where our heart is. That's where he resides. There's nothing you can hide from him. There's nothing that he does not see. And he requires and desires to, to own the whole inside. And yet we have this funny feeling and this funny thought that we can like come to church and just, you know, be really God And then be able to, even maybe while we're being God, inside hold grudges. Inside hate someone. Inside be mad and frustrated and angry. Inside be carrying lustful thoughts or sexual immorality. Inside and we think we're getting away with it. Because we're looking good on the outside. But I'll tell you what, it's not me that judges you. It's not me that's going to stand at the end of the, end of the age and you're going to have to stand before me and give an account. It's not me. It's not anyone in this building that you're going to stand before. You're going to stand before God. And God saw every thought and intent of your heart. And that's what will be judged. But the Bible is very clear that if he owns our heart, if he lives in here, lives and breathes with just this mighty power, it's going to have an effect on the outside. God is far too big to live in a little piece of your heart and not have an effect in your outer life. He wants to explode out of every cell of yours, every thought of yours. He wants to take captive every thought. He wants to control it because he wants a bunch of him walking on this earth. He wants a bunch of him. He doesn't want us walking around divided. He wants to own the whole thing. So is it outer or is it inner? Is it outer behavior that we're looking for or inner change? Both. Turn over to James 2. Did you already go there? James 2 verse 14. Mike's running across. 
What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? So in other words, his heart is there, but his outer actions. I mean, there's people in this world that say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and they live in sin. You would never know the difference between them and anybody else. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does not do anything about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You foolish man, do you want evidence with that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abram, Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. I want you to see something. Abram believed and it was credited with righteousness. That was the first thing. Then he was asked to enter into circumcision and he obeyed. And that was his token. We always have to keep in mind God wants to own our inner, 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 inner being. And then he wants to see that express out of us with action. Now the rest, we're going to kind of get into some more stuff. But if we don't get that, if we don't get that on our inside, if we don't understand this, we're going to be confused in our Christian walk. And I don't want that to be because what, the, the Jews are going to get confused. They're going to start thinking that if they, get, you know, they get circumcised and they're a Jew, because they're circumcised, they can live any way they want. And they can't, because God's not owning their heart. Right? Are you following me? Okay. So let's move on. Well, first of all, before we move on, <laughs> I, I promised you a couple of weeks ago some pictures. Do you guys remember the part of Abram's life where... Lot and Abram had separated and Lot. What did Lot choose? The plain. The plain that was the garden of the Lord, right? And uh, um, Abram had to go up into the mountains. Just a minute, I'll tell you what that picture is. Abram had to live up in the mountains, right? And the the kings of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, there was five cities in the plain. We're going to learn about that tonight. Uh, Those kings went to war with six other kings and... Uh, Lot's kings lost, basically, and those other kings took all the people and the possessions, and they were riding away with them, and Abram hears about it, gathers his troops, he has 300 troops about that, that much, and he rides after them as far as Dan. Do you remember that passage? As far as Dan. Dan is the very northern part of Israel. Dan is a tribe of Israel, and they were the very, very northern part. When we were there a year ago, we went to Dan. Dan, okay, D-A-N, that's the name of the city. Tell Dan is Mount Dan. It's up on a mountain. Every, the word tell in Israel is the word mount, so it's kind of weird. I, they kept saying, we're going to go to Tell Dan. I'm like, Why are we, what are we going to tell Dan? You know? Well, apparently Tell is a mountain, okay? 
So we went up there, and there's this city that they have been unearthing, and uh, that is the... This is, this is the city square. If you go back to the last picture, you can see this is one of the outer walls. This city is the city, the town, if you want to call it city or town, where Abram caught up with those kings and grabbed Lot and was able to bring back the spoils. This city, that wall, dates back to Abram's time in 2000 and about 2100 uh, B.C., Okay, so go ahead. Those are the outer walls. This is the uh, town square where the, the elders and chief priests would sit on that little area there. So I went and sat on it. And they would um, make rulings and judgings for the city. Go ahead to the next one. That is the entry. A lot of times the entry into the city was kind of a, a zigzag, so it would slow the enemies when they would come in. They would ride their chariots around that corner there. So this is the main entrance. I think that's Dwayne walking down there. Okay, so these are the oldest part of that city. These are actually some stone steps that uh, very, very much uh, Abram probably walked on those steps. Pretty cool, huh? Go to that last picture. Is there one more? Nope. Go back. Nope, wrong way. That's the Dead Sea. We're going to get to that one in just a minute. Okay. Apparently, I didn't send all the pictures I thought I did. Okay. So, um, but anyway, isn't that kind of fun? We went... (laughs) I didn't tell you I was going to put that in there. Okay. We're going. That was you, buddy old pal. That was you. Yes, it was. I'll show you. But I didn't put our tar color, you know, when we... Okay. So, um... But anyway, those, those, cha- those stairs, can I bring you back to the word now? Can you stay focused? Okay. Okay, so, um, that, so that's a little bit of fun from the past uh, in that um, those, were, those were some actual places that Abram, you know, in our storyline goes. Okay, but let's go ahead to, to Genesis 18, see if we can get somewhere here tonight. Oh, boy. Okay. So we just finished up uh, chapter 17 last week, and honey, you're still laughing over there. I forgot to warn you that that picture was in there, didn't I? Sorry. I owe you one. What do you want? <laughs> in Veggie Tales? Oh, boy. Okay, verse, chapter 18, verse 1. We just finished up the, 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 the couple of days there of circumcision, and people are, you know, the whole um, tribe is healing and getting all better. So let's start with uh, verse 1. We, we just start right in. The Lord appeared to Abraham uh, near the great trees of Mamre. Now, we have already been about, learned about those great trees. Those were a couple of chapters ago, uh, and he's still there. And um, uh, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. So there were three men and they were approaching. It was kind of a a sudden appearance from what this sounds like. Uh, He didn't necessarily see them coming from afar off. He all of a sudden saw them standing there. There were three men. And of those three men, one of them is the son of God and two of them are angels. Now, Abraham doesn't know that quite yet. Right now he looks up and they are all in the form of a man, all three men, okay? So, but I'm just kind of letting you know. So as the story unfolds, who you're talking about. The Lord, that, that word Lord there in the first verse is Jehovah. So uh, originally the, the writer is uh, letting you know, kind of identifying these men. One of the men is Jehovah, okay? 
Jehovah appeared to Abraham near the trees of Mamre. Uh, he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed down, bowed low to the ground. Now, let me help you understand that the um, typical, uh, traditional way back in these days, it was a very high emphasis on hospitality. If you did not, if they did not experience hospitality one to another, they would die, basically. They are out in the, in the desert, and if you were a traveler, you could expect that if you came by, people would want to host you. They would want to be hospitable. In fact, it, is, it was a tradition that you were hospitable to the point of your own death. So you have to understand the next two chapters, if you don't get the, this mindset inside, you're going to wonder why they are doing the things they're doing. But their hospitality ethic at this point and at this time and in this area was so high that if you saw anyone you didn't know, some, anybody who did not have a home or anything like that, you immediately reach out to them, you get them, you bring them home, and you do three things. You wash their feet, you feed them, and you let them sleep. So it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter anything. You, you do that. Okay, so it says here that he, he saw them and he hurried to them. That is something that you would do, you would hurry to them, if when you looked at them, you saw them to be your superior. So when he saw these three men, he felt that they were his superior, so he hurried to them. If they were equals, you would just wait till they came, and then then you would carry out your hospitality. But he hurried to them. So that tells us that these men had an air, a dress, a mannerism that was... um, of superiority, either a king or a prince or a, um, like an army sergeant or something, somebody of importance. And then it said that he bowed down low to the ground. That is something that everyone would do in greeting, everyone. And I could give you lots of scriptures, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. There's many times in the book of Genesis, from here on out, you're going to see them and you'll read that they came up and they bowed down low. This is getting way down low. This is how they greet one another. This is a normal greeting. It's not that he knew that they were, this was God. This is their normal greeting one to another. Okay. So he bowed down low to the ground. Verse 3, he said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Now that Lord there is not as divinity. That Lord is in master or it's a humble statement, okay? Do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and let that you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you some, something to eat so you can be refreshed and then you can go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Okay, so did you hear the three things? Wash your feet, give you food. Let you rest. So he is a very, he's acting in, in right manner. Very well, the answer, do as you say. So Abraham hurried to the tent of Sarah. Quick, get three seas of fine flour and knead it and bake it some bread. That's a very quick way to do it. Um, he, did, they didn't let it rise. It just was a flat cake. When, then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. Meat was, not a, uh, was a luxury, and it was saved for great feasts and great dinner and great guests. So he's really putting on the show here for these guys. He's really doing it big for them. Um, 
So he ran, he did this, he, and he brought, brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set them before him, them. While they eat, ate, he stood near, uh, near them under a tree. Now, this is normal for their hospitality. It's normal back in that time to serve your guests and then step away and be ready to serve them if they need it. Give them privacy. So this was very normal. I always wondered, why did he go stand under the tree? Why didn't he just sit down and eat with them? You know, that wasn't normal back then. This is normal. Okay, so, um, so they, they, he eats under the tree. One of them asked, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Okay, now, how would they know what his wife, Sarah, is? How would they know that he had a wife named Sarah? This is the first time at this moment, Abraham is thinking, okay, how did you know that? So he's starting to dawn on him that maybe we're looking at divinity here. Something is different here. And, uh, okay, they asked, she's here in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will, now this would be the son of God speaking. This, is, this would be Jehovah here. I will, well, not Jehovah, but, but the son of God, one of the three. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening from the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. In other words, she was post-menopausal. She'd been through it all. She'd done her hot flashes. She had done it all. And she was done. She had been given this promise when she was very fertile. It would have been easy for God to do it then. But it also would be easy for her in her mind to just say, I got pregnant. I'm sure that as she was going through menopause, as she was going through the changes, she's probably thinking, God, you better hurry up. And then it ended. God, you're too late. But God waited. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm all worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? She laughed. This is a mocking laugh. This is a, this is a yeah, right, you're a little late laugh. This is a, whew. you're joking, aren't you? Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? How would you like to be eavesdropping on your husband and his guests and his guests say something and you're like, and then the guest says, why did your wife just go? It's basically what happened. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? It's very interesting that God would put that phrase on the end of his question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Basically, Sarah at this moment could say absolutely yes. Because there's no human way this could happen. But this son of God at this moment says, Isn't, is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? I would say to you, whatever dreams are dead, whatever struggles you're in the middle of, no matter how hard it might seem or how far it is from being possible, I would like to ask you, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. 
But he said, yes, you did laugh. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Ah, yes. He called her out. Ah, yeah, you did. I think at that point, Sarah, I don't know. If I was Sarah, I'd walk away going, oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Maybe I shouldn't have laughed in the first place, but also maybe I shouldn't think that God can't see my innermost being. Remember I started off by saying that God owns your heart. He stands privy to all of your thoughts and your intents and your mind and your heart. And we can't look at him and go, I didn't do that. You'll go, yeah, you did. For some reason, we have this thought in our head, this mindset, this this paradigm that our innermost thoughts are our innermost thoughts. But they kind of aren't. You might not know what I think. And I might be able to fool you. But we can't fool the Lord. He knows our innermost thoughts and intents at all times. Kind of scary, huh? But it just keeps us honest. Did you hear what I just said? It keeps us honest. Oh, that we would be honest with each other as well. Yes, you did laugh. Verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down and saw, 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 looked towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Now, that is another piece of uh, mid, Middle East hospitality that says that after you have done these things for your guests, then you see them on their way so they don't get lost. You make sure they know where to go and you walk with them. Verse 17, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that, remember I told you a couple weeks ago, the words interpreted here, are it says, so that he will direct his children. But it's more properly interpreted because he will guide his children. This is why God chose him. Because he would father his children and show them the way of God. He would not just let them live how they want to live. What kid wants to eat their broccoli? But a good, oh, you do. Yes, Sophia does. She's a perfect child. Every family has one, believe me. But children don't naturally want to do things that are right. And children don't naturally want to serve God or live right or live well. But for some reason, God saw in Abraham the fact that he would lead his children in, by doing what is right and just so the Lord will bring. Uh, and he would lead his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Huge. By doing what is just and right so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Very interesting little passage here. Did you hear what it said? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
Back in that James passage, the very last sentence that I read, if you remember, Abraham was a friend of God. We used to sing that song. I am a friend. Oh, remember that? Oh, boy. We did that a hundred times. God, when, when Abraham shifted and believed in his heart, he entered back into a relationship with God through faith, through belief, through just believing God. What is that shift that Abram had back, back when God was telling him all this stuff and, and Abram believed? It's the shift of, of just stepping in, stepping in alignment, stepping in, trusting. It's this shift, and that is the beginning of what you can start having a relationship And it was such a powerful shift that God now saw Abraham as his friend. When you believe, when you walk in that, when you're in that place with God, you are his friend. And at this point, what do friends do? Friends talk about what's going on. Friends friends talk about what's happening. Friends talk about what you're doing. God wants to do that with us. God stirs us. And as we listen, we can hear what's going on. We can feel it on the inside. We can know, we can be called to pray. We can be called to do this and that. And this is where the spirit of prophecy comes out, where God begins to reveal his secrets. And that's how God wants to interact with us. And that's what God did here with with Abraham. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Very interesting. The outcry, there's only been one other time in biblical history at this point where the outcry, where, where there was a cry. Remember, do you remember where the evil was crying out in the time of Noah? When the world was filled with evil and there was only one man that walked with God? Things were getting back to that level. God was hearing, he was, he was hearing this cry. Have you ever heard a cry? What do you do when you hear a cry? You go to find out what the cry is all about. When there is evil abounding, there are always victims and perpetrators. And the moral evil that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah at this point were so loud that the cry, there was actually a lot of the commentators say that there were different kinds of cries reaching his ears. There were the victims of every sin that was being perpetrated because sin always has a victim. And those victims were crying out for justice. They were crying out in their pain. But also there's a cry whenever there's a sin committed of injustice and of immorality. And that is a cry that God hears and he must attend to because remember, God is holy and he's just. So there was a cry and it says here, it's very interesting, he came down to see if it was really as bad as what he was hearing. 
God is a very just God. He is a very personable God. He's very much up close and personal. He came down to actually look and see to make sure before he passed judgment. Verse 22, the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So two, the angels, the two angels turned and started walking toward Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities there. And the Lord stayed with Abraham. And now comes one of the most powerful passages. Remember, since we've started Genesis 1-1, I have tried to show you the character and the intent of God's heart. Because we all misunderstand him. We don't get him. We don't get him. And we like to project all sorts of things on who God is and what he is like and and all of that. But when you read Genesis, I am just struck by the different characteristics that I see. And this is one of them. And I want you to see it. Are you ready for one of my most favorite passages? Then Abraham approached him and he said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place, place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? Abraham, in all of his humility understood his position now as friend with God. And God had shared with him his intent that there's this cry, there's this evil, and I've got to take care of it. I've got to go down there. I've got to, I've got to bring judgment. And, and uh, Abraham knew his nephew Lot was in that city, but he also figured there had to be more good ones. And he, did, he all of a sudden felt this, this incredible uh, angst inside of him that there was going to be judgment brought. And he stands before God himself. And he says, if there's even fit. Remember we talked about remnant. How important is the remnant to God? Oh, he loves the remnant. If he has a remnant, he can work. He can get in there into that heart and, and he can and rot a change. But if there's not a remnant, he has no hope. If there's not a remnant, there's no hope for society. And he says, if there's 50, will you, will you hold your hand back? And for the sake of those 50, would you really just wipe out all the wickedness and 50 righteous? What about those 50? Will you save the place for, if you know, for the 50 righteous? For you, Far be it from you to, to treat the, rich, the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for his sake or for their sake. I want to bring to attention, this attention to you. This is the first recorded prayer in the Bible. And this prayer is a prayer of intercession for the saving of the righteous and the wicked. 
We are called to be intercessors at all times. God had said what he was going to do. Abram, the friend of God, the one who believed, stood in his presence and began to talk to him and said, God, will you really do this? What if? And God said, okay. He changed his plan. Right? So how vital, how important, how powerful are we when we stand as a friend of God in faith and we look to him and we say, Father God, I know, I know our culture is evil. I know there's an outcry before you, but will you, you know, take away the righteous and the wicked? Will you spare us? Will you see us through? Will you, you know, redeem us? And he will. He will, if there's one to stand in the gap for them. If I find 50 righteous in the city of people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. I will spare the whole place for their sake. Remnant. Verse 27, then Abraham spoke up and said, now that I have been so bold to speak to you, and though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? Dust and ashes were the, is the most finest particle that's seen. And he's likening himself to that. He's showing his humility. I am but a little speck of dust. But God, you, oh God, if there's, even fi- if there's five less, will you save the city? Will you save it? Will you hold your hand back and give it more time? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if there are f- only 40 are found? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. How many of you ever felt like there was only 40 in the whole world. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if there are only 30 that can be found? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, uh, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found? And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Everything Abraham asked, God granted. The moment Abraham quit asking, God said, let it be. He ended at ten. Do you know why he ended at ten? Ten, in the Hebrew culture created a congregation. If you had 10, then you had a synagogue. Not that they had synagogues quite yet, but a group of 10, that's what that signifies. But Abraham stopped at 10. God agreed with him every step of the way. He stopped at 10. There's only one problem. There was only four. But the heart of Abraham 
for the righteous in the midst of such evil caused God to extract the righteous so that he could bring judgment. The righteous are saved from judgment. Sometimes we walk through hard times, but the hard times we walk through are to refine us and to bring us closer to him. But God will protect us from the judgments that are being levied against the, re- the wicked. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Then the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, and he left, and Abraham returned home. All right? Did we get through the chapter? The spirit of intercession. Chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. He sat at the gateway of the city, kind of like what we saw in that picture, right? The elders of the city sit there. They judge the city. They judge issues. They're the important ones. Lot was one of those. He was sitting there at the gateway of the city, and when he saw them, he got, to, to, got up and, uh, to meet them, and he bowed down in his face at the ground. Now, all of a sudden, we know why. That's normal, right? Everybody say normal. I don't know why they kept putting their face in the ground. It was always dirty. There's no, no nice carpet. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly. That little phrase there means that he used many words. He actually physically got them. He was very, very, very um, uh, strong on this. He begged and cajoled and, and used many words. He was very insistent that they would go, they did, and that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. How many men from Sodom surrounded the house? Every single one. That word all means all. Young, old, middle-aged, All of them came. This shows how deep the evil pervaded. All the men, they were either going to be spectators or participators. But they all were there. Both young and old surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. It's plain as day. Can't change that one. Lot went outside to meet them, and he shut the door behind him, and he said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. What father in his right mind would offer his two daughters to this crazy crowd. Why did he do that? This has always been a question to me. How did this happen? Lot is known as a righteous man. There's two things that are put forth by commentators. Number one, he was going by the, um, the kind of the hope and foreknowledge that they would say no, because that's not what they were after. They wanted homosexual activity. They did not have desire for women. 
So he was banking, could be. He was banking on that position. And so he offered them. If I was the daughter, I'd go, Dad, what are you thinking? You know. The other thing, the other reason that's given is remember I told you that hospitality is to the point of death? This shows, this passage right here shows how absolutely to the death they had to protect their guests. And every man in the city, young and old, was there. Don't do this thing to these men, for they have come under uh, the protection of my roof. Verse 9, get out of our way, they replied. And, and they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. Remember I told you he sat at the front, uh, at the gateway of the city, and he was their judge. But how many of you know when righteousness lives among wickedness, that just their mere presence becomes the judge? There have been times when I haven't even said a blessed thing. But those that maybe I work with or are around feel judged. Not because I've said anything or done anything. But you as a righteous person, just living life, will shine the light on the fact that there are dark deeds being done. This fellow has come here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat him worse than them. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men reached uh, out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were out at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because you are, we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. The words, that, that phrase there actually connotates a mocking spirit. We can live day to day to day to day in the midst of evil. And think it's just going to keep going because it has always been. But I will say to you that when the fullness of time comes, God judges wickedness. You can go in day in, day out, doing your own thing, walking in your own, excuse me, your own portion of sin, thinking. It will always be the same, but it won't. I know these are heavy words. They mocked him. And they wouldn't come. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. 
when he hesitated, he lingered. That word hesitated, he mean, means question. He turned around. He wanted to know the hows, the whats, the whys, and the wheres. He took a moment, and instead of doing immediately what God was saying at that moment, he said, um, are you sure? I mean, I don't know. I, I, you know. Remember, Lot was very, very rich when he went to Sodom. He had many things. He had many possessions. He had become very comfortable in the way of this world. He had been blessed by much. He had much when he was in Sodom. And when those angels, if you had angels who just struck blind everyone in that city and they told you to hurry up, I think I would hurry up. But maybe I wouldn't. Because to hurry up and to leave means to leave behind a lot of stuff. And he didn't just run. He stopped. He's, he hesitated. He lingered. He was like, yeah, but are you sure? And where are we? What? What? It's always been. And it's always been okay. And we've always been able to live in the midst of this. And, and, and maybe it's okay. And, and, and the angels did. What did they do right here? Hurry up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Even in their lingering and even in their hesitation and even in their want, you know, what, what should, you know, I mean, if I was Lot's wife, I'd be running around going, what should I take? What should I take? You know, I'd be like, where's my pictures? And, you know, what are my favorite things? I would be packing up. I don't know. You know, she had to leave a lot behind. The angels grabbed him by the hand and led them out. They were merciful to them. Verse 17, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is a very small, it's very small, isn't it? And then my life will be spared. At this moment, what so many commentators feel is that he was so fried in his brain. He was so just anxious and and wrought up that his body was beginning to fail him and he was beginning to walk in fear. Don't you think that if God has already done everything you just saw, he could help you get to the mountains? Don't you think that your first word would say, okay, I'm going. But no, he has, and Lot has had a history of choosing the easy way. Remember, he chose the plain because it was so beautiful and easy. Now, Zoar, Z-O-A-R, is one of those five cities that were meant to be destroyed. But since Lot ran there, he couldn't destroy that city. So that city remained. And that city is spoken of now over the next books and chapters of the Old Testament. You're going to find the word Zoar coming up. Every time you see that, you're going to think, okay, that was a city that was meant to be destroyed. But because Lot chose to run there instead of to the mountains, it remained. Verse 21, and he said to to him, very well, I will grant this request to you too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. 
By the time, verse 23, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and, when the, and then the Lord rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah and the, from the Lord out of the heavens, and he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation of the land. I was going to show you pictures. Can you show those pictures of, um, not of the Dead Sea, but um, of that area right in there? Um, you're going to find that, remember the, the Bible says very clearly, why did Lot choose this plain? It was the garden of the Lord. It was likened in chapter 13 to the, actually the garden of Eden. It was a beautiful, beautiful land. If you go there today, it is stripped of every blade of vegetation. I know that's an odd picture. There's two ladies in yellow with a hat. I don't know why. We were trying to figure that out. But I want you to see this. What, if you turned around, you'd be looking at the Dead Sea. Back in that day, it wasn't dead. It was very flourishing. It was a very beautiful, fertile valley. The Bible says also when they were in that big war with all those kings that there was big tar pits. I don't know if you remember that part of that section. There's big tar pits and people were falling into the tar pits. So in that area, not only was a beautiful thing, but there were tar pits everywhere. So when God rained down fire and brimstone, the, the actual land began to burn because it was filled with tar. So that is what it, that area looks like now. They don't know where Sodom and Gomorrah and these five, four cities are anymore because they're, they're just gone. The city of Zoar, they, are, they think they found. They think that maybe Sodom and Gomorrah are under the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea really is dead. There's nothing living in it. Very salty. So go to that next picture. That, happened, that right there up in those... Um, those cliffs, that is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. We got to see that. It's right there on the, the banks of the, the Dead Sea, kind of up in those big things. It's so cool, right there in that. If you could zoom out, it's very absolutely inaccessible. And that's why for hundreds and hundreds of years, those were not found. They were accidentally found in there. So go to the next one, the Dead Sea. I'll show you those just for fun. That is the Dead Sea. The only thing alive in it. Now, see how clear it is? Inside of the Dead Sea, there's these huge chunks of tar bubble up. All the time. And they harvest that, and then they make soap out of it. And they tell you that if you go to the Dead Sea, that you take that tar and rub it all over you, it makes your skin feel really good. So we did it. But I didn't do pictures of that. We were all black. So go to the next picture. Now, that is a camel that was on an exit sign there on the freeway, and I just thought it was kind of cute, so you got to see the camel. Go to the next one. There's Dwayne floating. <laughs> you can't sink because it's so saline. Saline eyes, saline, whatever. No, not yet. Yeah. Okay, well, we got to finish. I'm late by 10 minutes. Are y'all mad at me? I'm, I am in so much trouble today. Yes, I know. I know, baby. Shall we just end right now or shall we finish the, the last few verses? Finish. Okay. Verse 26. Okay, so verse 23, once again. By the time Lot wrote, reached Zoar, the, the sun had risen over the land, and then the Lord rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord out of the hev- from the Lord out of the heavens, thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation of the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
she looked back. The word looked there means to scan with desire. She looked back, longing for what she was losing, instead of realizing that wickedness had to be judged and that her future was in front of her. People of God, you cannot look back. You cannot look back. You cannot look back. There might have been good things prior to your conversion to Christ in your life, but there was a lot of bad too. And God will judge the wickedness, but he wants to bring life in front of you. We cannot look back. We have to look forward. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had been standing before the Lord. And he looked out toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from the furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Let's all stand. Incredible two chapters. I didn't quite finish. The rest of this chapter is going to be very questioning in your heart. If you read it, you'll go, what? And then you'll have to come back next week, and I'll explain it to you. So don't, get dis- don't be dis- you know, dismayed, because the rest of this chapter does sound fairly funky. But the bottom line of what I want you to hear and understand is that you are a friend of God. That if your heart has chosen to believe, if your, ch- your heart has shifted into belief, if you have heard the voice of the Lord, you've heard his calling in your life, and you have chosen now to step into belief, you are a friend of God. And he will share his secrets with you. But also the flip side of that, of the, the other side of this relationship, that if you are a friend of God, you stand in his presence and he wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. The first prayer recorded was a man crying out in intercession. God wants to hear from you. We walk through our lives and sometimes we think and feel and observe that we are living in a very wicked generation. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish we could just like get in the Mayflower and float away and start a whole new country. Anybody with me? I want to be a pilgrim really bad. Would you be pilgrims with me? But we can't. There's no more places to float to. So now we stand in the midst of America as a friend of God. God's calling out to us to begin to intercede. We can't escape. We have to turn and face and intercede. Father, in Jesus' name, raise your hand right now. Father, God, I just ask you right now that there would be a heart of repentance in this nation. Father, God, that there would be a heart of repentance. And Lord God, I say right now, 
Father God, I know that there's a cry of unrighteousness that's rising up into your ears right now, that there are victims even now crying out, victims of incest, victims of hate, victims of murder, victims of abortion, victims of divorce, victims of every single evil thing that you stand against, and that cry is rising up to your ears. But Father God, I stand here in intercession. I know I know we deserve judgment, but Father God, wait just a little longer. And God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit and there would be a spirit of salvation flooding this nation, flooding this city, flooding this county, and flooding this state, flooding my family, Lord God. And I just stand in the gap and I will not give you any rest. Oh, Father, until you have moved, oh, Father, and these people have heard and been pressed towards salvation and towards repentance. And, Father God, I stand in the gap. I will give you no rest. I know your heart is for salvation, but your justice is pressing for judgment. And, Father God, I just pray right now that even as Saul was traveling to Damascus to destroy the believers, you did not judge him and destroy him, but you brought him to, uh, to his knees, oh Father God, and he became the most powerful instrument in your hands. And I pray with that right now for every murderer, for every hater, for every person that walks the face of the planet right now that is scoffing at you and kicking dirt in your face so father turn them around to become some of the most powerful weapons in your arsenal father god i pray for the church i pray right now for the church i pray right now just raise your hand intercede for the church oh father god i pray right now that we would not be whitewashed sepulchers with dead man's bones but that you would own the heart of every christian that walks the face of this nation the face of this city the face of this planet lord god i praise you right now that we would get our hearts in alignment that we we would not be something on the outside that we are not on the inside in jesus name oh god we love you we love you we love you teach us from your word teach us teach us teach